Good morning. We're grateful to worship the Lord with you all. I was in our time of elder prayer before the service was just reminded of Peter saying that believers are like living stones being built into a holy temple. So just as the Old Testament, right, the Lord would have the people gather for worship, so also we come and assemble together as living stones and we become that holy temple in the Lord and what a blessing it is to worship the King of Kings with you. Well, today I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and today is going to be part three of our little mini-series from this passage entitled, What to Do About Doubt. What to Do About Doubt, from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, which is, of course, the account of the Lord appearing to Thomas. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, and yet believed. This marvelous passage teaches us three things. It teaches us what doubt does, what Jesus does, and then what faith does. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at what verses 24 through 25 teach us about what doubt does. We saw that doubt distances. It distances you from God, from his people, and from his word. Doubt distrusts. It distrusts everyone else, but as we saw with Thomas, he trusted himself. So it distrusts, but distrusts selectively. And then third, we saw that doubt demands, it makes demands. He says, unless I can put my finger into the nail prints, I will not believe. Then last week, we looked at verses 26 through 27 and saw what this, those verses tell us about what Jesus does. And we saw that Jesus comes He confronts and he calls. He comes in that second Sunday gathering and he stands in their midst and then he confronts Thomas and then he gives him that great gospel call, do not be unbelieving but believing. So today we come to the third section of our passage and our outline and we're going to be looking at what faith does, specifically looking at verses 28 through 29 and seeing three aspects of what faith does. Now, whenever a preacher says the word faith, it elicits a 
visceral and negative reaction in the heart of doubters and skeptics. The skeptic thinks that faith is inherently or intrinsically irrational and foolish. The skeptic may say something to you like this, I prefer to base my life on facts, not faith. I want to base my life on facts, not faith, says the skeptic. Now, there are two major flaws in that statement that I'd like to point out. First, it begs the question. It begs the question by presupposing that the Christian faith is not founded on historical facts, that is not founded on reality. I'm going to base my life on facts, not faith. And you see the dichotomy being made. Well, that presupposes the very question. It begs the question by assuming without argumentation or evidence that the Christian faith is not founded on reality, on historical facts. But the claim of the Christian faith has been, is, and will always be that these things really happened. The virgin birth really happened. The miracles of Christ really happened. His life, death, burial, and resurrection really happened, and his second coming will really happen. These are facts, and we believe that this is the reality of the world. So when the skeptic says that they believe in facts, not faith, they're simply begging the question. They're begging the very question at hand. And the vast majority of people who make the I'm a facts guy claim so loudly and proudly are those who have never even bothered to take a real look at the historical evidence, the textual evidence, the archaeological evidence, and the eyewitness evidence for the Christian faith. They're just blowing smoke. I believe in facts, not faith, which is a smokescreen for being unwilling to look at the facts and look at the evidence. Those who do honestly and diligently investigate tend to become Christians. You can ask Lee Strobel, a skeptic and a journalist who decided once and for all to disprove the Christian faith, went to look at the actual evidence and became a Christian as a result. He, as well as many others, discovered that once you actually do start looking at the facts, it is the believers in Jesus who have based their life on reality and on facts. It is the unbelievers who have put their trust in fiction. The second thing I want you to notice about the statement, well, I base my life on facts, not faith, is that when someone says that they live their lives by facts and not by faith, that person is displaying a rather embarrassing lack of self-awareness. There's an embarrassing lack of self-awareness that is displayed whenever someone says, I base my life only on facts. Oh, really? Let's dive into that a little bit. The reality is that only a very, very tiny percentage of the skeptic's daily life is lived based upon things that they have personal, firsthand, and comprehensive knowledge of the facts on. It's a minuscule percentage. The vast majority of what they so confidently label as facts are things that they themselves have never directly 
and personally investigated or verified for themselves. The vast majority of the facts that they believe and upon which they base their life is nothing more than things they have believed by some sort of faith. They can talk about living by facts, not faith, all they want, but the reality is that they believe the authors of the books they have read, whatever book that may be. They entrust their lives to technology that they don't personally understand and have never personally investigated. In fact, these skeptics who claim to live only by facts, not by faith, have so much faith in someone they met five minutes ago wearing a mask that they're willing to let that person give, give them an injection, put them to sleep, cut them open, and remove things out of their body. Right? I mean, I, I don't know how many of you have had surgery, but you, know, you go in there and you're meeting all these people for the first time, and five minutes after you meet them, they're all wearing masks, you're completely willing to let them put you unconscious and cut you open with knives. That's how much faith you have that they're really a doctor, they really know what they're doing, they're there to help you, not to kill you, all of those type of things. Those are things that you have to trust them with. So to the skeptic, I want to just gently but earnestly encourage you to consider something. It is an absurdity to claim that you live your life solely by facts. That is an absurdity. Why is it an absurdity? Well, it's pretty simple. You are a finite being. You are a finite and geographically limited creature who has an extremely limited knowledge of a minutely small slice of everything that's happening now and who has lived for a little tiny slice of everything that's ever happened. You have a limited knowledge of a small slice of the world, a small slice of history, a small slice of space and of time. You are a finite being. Of all of the facts in the universe, you have first-hand knowledge of a tiny, tiny portion. The rest of what you think you know, you have actually received by faith in whoever it was that told you about it. You probably believe there's a continent. You've never been to that continent. You believe that there's a continent called Africa. Well, if you've never been to Africa, you believe that based upon faith and those who have been there and told you about it and all of that. You haven't seen it firsthand. It is something you've received by faith. And the vast majority of your knowledge is this way. The vast majority of your knowledge is this way. So I want to encourage the skeptics to dispense with the foolish and false epistemological dichotomy between faith and facts. The only being, the only being in the universe who lives exclusively based upon facts is God. And again, the explanation is simple. The only being in the universe who operates 100% of the time by personal, firsthand, comprehensive knowledge of all of the facts about everything is God. He is omniscient because he is infinite. You are not omniscient because you are finite. 
you, by definition, can't and don't know everything. So every finite being lives their lives by faith. Things that they trust, that they've heard, been told, that they have seen. The only question is who your faith is in. The only question is who your faith is in. The object of your faith is what is at dispute. When a skeptic meets a Christian, it is a meeting between two believers. One believes in an infinite God, the other believes in finite creation, and they are discussing whose faith is more rational and more warranted. They both have faith. They're both worshipers. One worships the creation, the other worships the creator. One's trust is in the creation, the other's trust is in the creator. I recently took Lathy and Annie to the ropes course here in Kalamazoo. And I was amazed by how brave my little eight-year-old Annie was. She was scampering across the ropes and the balance beams and even jumping off that zipline platform even though it was up so high. I was just amazed by her bravery. We had a great time and it was a lot of fun. But the reason it was fun and not deadly was because we were safely secured in a harness a harness that could sustain our weight and prevent us from falling. And life is a lot like a high ropes course. You will put your faith in something. You will put your faith in someone or something. The question is whether the object of your faith can hold you, whether it can sustain the epistemological weight you're putting on it, whether it can sustain your future, whether it can sustain scrutiny. Where is the object of your faith? Is it strong enough to hold you? And I would suggest to you that the only object of faith that can keep you secure for time and eternity is God himself. I want you to consider something that Jesus said about faith in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Listen as I read you what Jesus says. He says, it says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them, right? So here's the disciples, and they're now looking at this child. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So why does Jesus put this child before them and say, you have to be converted, changed, and humble yourself, become like this child? Because the thing about a child is that they understand they don't understand they trust, right? They trust their parents. They trust adults. The reason that Annie could climb up on all of those balance beams all that high is because an adult put a harness on her and her dad told her it was okay and she trusted that we knew what we were doing and we knew that this was safe. Jesus tells us that's the kind of faith we need to have, a faith which humbles ourselves and trusts our Heavenly Father. 
we need to have the faith of a child. Well, why? Why do we need to have the faith of a child? And again, the skeptic's like, ha, see, you know, you know, you know, I'm an adult. Look how advanced and rational I am. And here's this old-fashioned preacher telling me to have faith like a child. What does a child do? A child is humble enough to realize that he or she is too little to know all the answers. The child trusts in parents and adults because they are older and wiser than her. Jesus says that's how you have to be. When we have unanswered questions, we need to be humble enough to trust our Heavenly Father. He is not only older and wiser than us, He is infinitely older and wiser than us. You see, the difference between me as an adult and Annie as a child is a significant difference, but the difference between God and me is much bigger of a gap than the distance between Annie and I. The distance in knowledge the distance in experience. God is eternal. I am finite. He is, to put it in simple childlike terms, older and wiser than me. So it's foolish to trust in myself. It's not foolish to trust in him. Can you imagine if Annie decided that she knew better how to stay safe on that higher ropes course? It wouldn't end well. She knew better how to put on the harness. It wouldn't end well. It is not foolish to trust in God. It is foolish to trust in yourself or to trust in any other recently created, recently existing being. That eloquent skeptic, name them, right? The famous ones, right? Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, whoever, right? All the famous skeptics, Bart Ehrman. That eloquent skeptic that you're so enamored by is just a created and finite being. And he is barely out of diapers compared to the eternal God. Don't be so foolish as to put your trust in those who are, are in the grand scheme of things, infants. They are infants in their knowledge of the universe. Absolute infants. They've lived for 60 years. Wow, 60 years. That seems like a lot when you're 18. Doesn't seem a lot when you're eternal. Faith trusts the character and competence and credibility of God. Skepticism trusts the character and competence of created beings, which is the more logical, the more rational. Doubt distrusts the character competence of God, but it trusts oneself. It trusts the supposedly deep insights of some other person. In the grand scheme of things, that's like babies trying to figure out the universe by gaga gooing at each other. I uh, decided not to do it because, you know, there's always copyright issues, right? But there's this famous clip of like two twin babies, right? Just like, you know, this, having this, you know, incredible conversation. Gaga goo! right I mean and it's cute right because they don't even have fully formed language human beings when we zoom out to the big picture we have to realize how 
finite and limited we really are. Have you ever stopped to consider how foolish it really is to trust in mankind, to make man your trust? What is man according to scripture? Well, man is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's like the grass of the field that flourishes and then the wind passes over, it's gone and is no more and its place doesn't even remember it. You know, I guarantee you, you don't remember the most famous skeptic of the 13th century, do you? I don't either. No one does. What is man? Man is a being who has experienced an infinitesimally small portion of both reality and history. That's man. What is man? Man is a fallen creature who is prone to both being deceived and to deceiving. Think about what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's going to contrast the credibility of man and man's word with the credibility of God and his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Right? This is what Jesus said. He said, look, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the pit. Right? What, what is trusting mankind? It's the blind following the blind. We recently had an exterminator come, right? And you, you know, they put out these little ant traps, right? You can like watch the ants all marching in line right into the trap. Right? Like, you know, and I'm sure it makes sense, right? When you're like the 38th ant, you're just following the one in front of you, right? And he seems pretty competent, like he's a good ant and knows what he's doing. So you just follow him right along, right? It seems logical from the perspective of the ant, but from the perspective of a human being, it seems so foolish. That's what mankind is, right? We're just following each other's lies. We are deceiving and being deceived, Listen to what he says. He says, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, I'm sure that in the 13th century there were youth who were really enamored with the writings of some skeptic. We don't even know what those books are because their books are gone, this one remains. It has stood the test of time. People are easily deceived and they're so prone to deception, right, to being deceived and then to deceiving others that the psalmist once wrote in Psalm 116, 11, I said in my alarm, all men are liars. Well, who can I trust? You know what the answer is? When, you're asked, when you ask the question, who can I trust? And if your thinking is about mankind, the answer is no one. Who is worthy of full 100% trust? The answer is no one. Because every person lies, every person gets deceived. There's no one who is 100% honest 100% of the time and 100% correct about 100% of everything. So Paul in Romans 3, 4 contrasts the deceitfulness of mankind with the trustworthiness of God. He says, let God be true, though every man a liar. 
Right? The book of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. I mean, you, you can lie even when you don't mean to because you're just simply wrong. We call it being mistaken, right? But you say something that is not true. It is false. You think it is, but it is not. You are easily able to be deceived and therefore to deceive. So to trust in the, quote, eloquence and wisdom of some skeptic is truly foolish because fallen people lack both the character and the competence to be worthy of existential and ultimate trust. It's not a secure harness for your life. Can you imagine what would have happened if Annie and Lathie and I had rejected the harness that they gave us and said, you know what, we know better. We know better. And so we pull out a can of silly, scre- silly string and begin making a harness, you know, silly stringing ourselves to the, you know, to the rack there. What, what would happen, right? It would be foolish and deadly. Trading trust in God the creator for trust in man the creation is like trading your climbing rope for a can of silly string. There's no even comparison between the trustworthiness of the two. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 17. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of doubt nor cease to yield fruit. Right? Trust in the Lord, not in man. In the book of Wisdom, the book of Proverbs, there's a famous passage that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, right? You're one of the line of ants, right? I mean, by this point, you're like, what, the 10th billionth in line, you know? And you see oh so much of the universe, don't you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, Right? Well, why shouldn't you lean on your understanding? It is so finite. It's so limited. Right now, there are significant things happening in Asia. You don't know them. I don't know them. I don't even know everything that's happening in this room, right? I mean, there could be some kid like crawling under the pews right now. I can't see him. It's fine if you're crawling under the pews, by the way. It doesn't bother me. Now, if an adult is crawling under the pews, that's a little weird. Our security guys are probably going to notice that. But anyway. Right? But you, you know such a small proportion of even current reality, much less past reality, future reality. So don't trust in your own understanding. Instead, it says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Skepticism and doubt is foolish because it distrusts God while trusting man. It distrusts the creator while trusting the creation. It's foolish. 
It's foolish. Doubt places its weight and its fate on the silly string of human competence and human character. Faith places its weight on the strong and secure and eternal safety harness of the character, the competence, and the cross of Christ. You want to hook your harness to the cross. That is the only place to be secure. So choose wisely, choose faith, and choose the only secure object of faith, which is God himself. So that's an exhortation. Now turn back to John 20, verses 28 through 29, and we're going to look at these three aspects of faith. And the first thing that we see about faith in this passage is that faith responds. Faith responds. Look at the beginning of verse 28. It says, Thomas answered. Right? Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And the first thing we see is that Thomas answers. Right? It's the most simple but yet profound aspect of faith. Faith answers. Faith responds to God. Faith answers the call of Christ. Christ says, come and follow me. And faith answers and says, I will follow. Christ calls and says, don't be unbelieving but believing. And faith responds. Faith answers. We talked last week about how Jesus comes to the doubter, confronts the doubter in regard to the foundations of their unbelief, and then calls them to repent of their unbelief and to believe. Right? The call of Christ, the doubter and the skeptic is, don't be unbelieving, but believing. So saving faith at its heart is very, very simple. It's simply answering the call of Christ. Christ has sent out his people, believers, as ambassadors to the world. We give an appeal to the world, be reconciled to God. God sends out his salvation call through the preaching of scripture, through someone sharing it with a friend through someone handing a tract to you, through a variety of means, he gets his word to you, and his word says, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And faith simply answers and says, I believe. Faith is, at heart, very, very simple. It's answering the call of Christ. It's responding, my Lord and my God, as Thomas did. And Romans 10, 13 gives a great promise. It says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Christ calls, he doesn't ignore your answer. Christ calls you, you answer, and he hears your answer, and he receives your answer. So when you hear the call of Christ through the proclamation of his word, answer him. Respond to him. Just talk to him in prayer. Say to him as Thomas did, my Lord and my God first thing we learn about faith is that it responds. Second thing we see about faith is that it repents. Faith repents. Thomas says in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He's confessing Christ as Lord now. And this is a radical 180 degree change from what he had said back in verse 25. In verse 25 he says, I will not believe. I won't believe. Now, Christ has confronted him and he repents. Christ has said, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas, who is unbelieving, now repents and believes. He repents and believes. And by the way, that has always been the gospel message. Repent and believe the good news. That's what Mark 1.15 says Jesus went about preaching. Jesus went about all the cities and towns, 
preaching a simple message. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance and belief, by the way, are like two sides of the same coin, right? If you say, what is saving faith? Well, it's like a coin that has two sides. One is repentance and one is belief. Repentance is turning from sin to follow Christ, right? You're not following Christ and you repent and now you follow Christ, right? Belief is setting aside all of Satan's lies and embracing God's truth, Repent and believe, right? That's what saving faith is. It's when you repent and believe the good news. We see these two aspects of saving faith in the confession which Thomas makes here in verse 28. He says, my Lord and my God, right? These are the two components of saving faith. When he says, my Lord, he's acknowledging the authority of Christ over him. He's expressing his repentance from sin and his commitment to follow Christ. Christ now is Lord, my Lord, and then he says, and my God. When he says, my God, he's confessing the deity of Christ. He's acknowledging who Jesus really is. He's expressing his belief in Jesus Christ, not as merely a rabbi or merely a teacher, but as the divine son of God, God incarnate. So what does faith do? Faith repents and faith believes. And when Thomas repents of his unbelief and believes the good news, he is transformed. He is transformed. We know through church history that Thomas serves the Lord all of his life. He dies as a martyr. He's transformed. So he's no longer doubting Thomas, right? We call him doubting Thomas because of his statement, right? Well, unless I can see the nail prints, I won't believe. But he is no longer doubting Thomas. He is now transformed by God's grace. In fact, now we should call him something like delivered Thomas because he was saved from his unbelief by Christ. We could call him doctrinal Thomas because he articulates the deity of Christ and the lordship of Christ in one very succinct statement. We could call him doxological Thomas because he becomes one who worships Christ in spirit and in truth. Or we could just simply call him Thomas the disciple because he follows Christ and never stops serving him until he dies as a martyr. D.A. Carson, commenting on Thomas's confession of faith, said this, quote, the most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. The most unyielding skeptic now has given us the most profound confession of faith. This is a radical transformation that occurs in Thomas's life. By the saving grace of God, the man who rightly earned the nickname Doubting Thomas now has an entirely different identity and a different role. What is Thomas's real role in Scripture? It is to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ and to be an example of faith. Not only is Thomas one of the apostles and one of the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection, he is given by the Holy Spirit a really important and really prominent role in Scripture itself. He is the seventh witness in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit inspires John to feature Thomas as the seventh and concluding witness. Remember, John in his Gospel has been bringing forth signs, seven signs, 
seven statements from Christ and seven eyewitnesses. And he's bringing these forth, he says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Thomas is that seventh and concluding witness presented in the Gospel of John. In fact, his testimony of faith in verse 28 comes just two verses before that great summary of the argumentation of the book of John in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, where John writes, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Doubting Thomas, now the seventh and final eyewitness, brought forth, as it were, in John's courtroom so that you may be convinced and you may believe. That's what grace does. It turns a skeptic into a saint. It turns the most doubtful into the most powerful eyewitness. That leads us, by the way, to the third thing we see about faith in this passage, which is that faith rejoices. Faith rejoices. Look now at the end of verse 29. Jesus says something very interesting to Thomas. He says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Faith rejoices. I want to draw your attention to that word blessed. Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Well, what is it to be blessed, right? To be blessed is to receive divine favor, which results in abiding joy, right? That's what it means to be blessed. To be blessed means that you've received God's favor and that has produced in you abiding joy. That's what faith does. It produces abiding joy. Faith rejoices. The believer rejoices Because he knows that his sins are forgiven. He knows he has eternal life. He knows that he is a co-heir with Christ. He knows he is securely in the Father's hand and that no one can snatch him away. He knows that he is a conqueror in Christ. That nothing can separate him from God's love. Not the present or the future. Not height or depth. Nor any created thing. Nothing can separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faith rejoices because faith knows Christ. Whereas doubt brings despair, faith brings joy. Right? The doubter, the skeptic whose trust is in man, who makes mankind his strength, he will eventually end in despair because that is a house built on sand. It's ant number nine billion following the ant in front of him to an unknown destination. Faith rejoices because faith knows the shepherd, the good shepherd. I want you to notice the comparison in verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Here's a comparison and a contrast here between Thomas and those who believe without seeing. There's a contrast here. And Jesus is saying that those who believe without seeing are more blessed than the Apostle Thomas. That's what verse 29 says. Those who who do not see and yet believe, 
They are the blessed ones, Jesus says. Now, I don't have any doubt that God blessed Thomas, that Thomas received incredible blessings from the Lord, but Jesus is saying here that those who believe without seeing, like Thomas saw, they are the ones who are blessed in a special way. They're blessed more than Thomas. They're blessed more than the others who saw the Lord with their own eyes. This, by the way, I think should provide an answer for you if you've wondered, as I have, like, well, why doesn't Christ just appear to me personally, right? Like, you know, when, you know, during some, some times in my life where, you know, early on in the teen years where I was struggling with some doubt, I'd be like, well, like, Lord, like, why don't you just, like, I would read the story about Thomas. I'd be like, well, Lord, why can't you do that for me? Look, it'll just take a few seconds, right? You appear, I feel the nail prints, boom, I'm like Thomas. All my doubts are gone. God, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? Here's the answer. He wants to bless you. He wants you to have the greater blessing. He wants you to believe without seeing. He wants you to walk by faith and not by sight. And he wants you to walk by faith and not by sight because that brings the greater blessing. Those who believe without seeing Jesus physically receive a greater blessing than those like Thomas who believe only after they have seen. I want to show this to you in another place in Scripture in relation to John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says some amazing things about John the Baptist. And then he says something even more amazing about us. Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. Jesus says this. He's speaking to the crowds about John the Baptist. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Right? You didn't go out there to see the reeds blowing in the wind, right? What did you go to see? What did you go out to see? He says in verse 25. A man dressed in luxurious clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed and lived in luxury are found in royal palaces, right? You wanted to go see someone dressed to the nines, you would have gone to the palace, not out to the desert. So why did you go out to the desert? What did you go out to see? Verse 26. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? He asked the crowds. When you went to go see John the Baptist, what were you seeing? Was it a prophet? Yes. And more than a prophet, he was the messianic forerunner, the messianic messenger who prepares the way for Messiah. Now listen to what he says next. Verse 28. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Right? So He's a prophet. He is the messianic forerunner. In fact, there's no one born of women who is greater than John, Jesus says. Now listen. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is a phenomenal statement. And I would always be like, well, you know, why does he say that? Well, John 20 verse 29 provides at least one of the answers to that question. 
Because it says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Like Thomas, John the Baptist saw Jesus and believed. He was the one who baptized Jesus when God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. John the Baptist saw Christ with his own eyes. He saw and he believed. And Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And in Luke chapter 7, he says, those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. Even the lowliest and the least of those who did not see Jesus and yet believed have a greater blessing. A greater blessing than the Apostle Thomas. A greater blessing even than the greatest man who ever was born, John the Baptist. So as we talked about last week, there are several reasons why God doesn't appear to you. God doesn't appear to you or write messages in the sky for you because he is not your personal circus performer. He doesn't do tricks on cue. But there's another reason. It's not just that he is holy and exalted and you don't get to boss him around. It is also his kindness. It is his kindness. He wants you to have the greater blessing. And that greater blessing comes by faith and not by sight. When we struggle with doubt, our hearts often say something like, well, Jesus, why can't you just appear to me so that all my doubts will go away? I think the Lord tenderly but firmly answers that question in verse 29. He's saying to us in verse 29, my child, I desire you to have the maximum blessing. And the maximum blessing belongs to those who believe without seeing. That's why I want you to walk by faith and not by sight because I love you. I want you to have the greatest blessing. The greatest trust brings the greatest blessing. When, his, when God asks you to walk by faith and not by sight, he's doing so because that brings blessing for you. Faith rejoices because by faith we believe what Jesus said to Thomas. Blessed are they who haven't seen and yet believe. Peter talked about this in his letter. He says, though you have not seen him, you what? You love him. That's precious to the Lord. You haven't seen him, and yet you love him. That is precious. That is sacred. That is holy, and that brings blessing. Faith rejoices. Well, that brings us to the end of our journey through John 20, 24 through 29. We've seen what Doubt does what Jesus does and what faith does. Doubt distances, doubt distrust, and doubt demands. But Jesus comes, he confronts, and he calls. What does faith then do? Well, faith responds, repents, and rejoices. My prayer for each and every soul here is that you will respond to the call of Christ, that you will repent of your trust in the creation and put your trust in the creator and that you will rejoice when Christ comes again because he says at the end of the Bible behold I am coming quickly and my reward is with me that blessing for believing even though you haven't seen is coming and so the Lord extends his call to every heart and every soul saying do not be unbelieving but believing Lord we come before you now to ask that in this room there would be no unbelieving heart. 
but rather hearts that believe. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that you give to those who have not seen and yet believe. You call us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, you have so graciously given us mountains of evidence. You've given us so many reasons to believe. Our faith is certainly warranted. But Lord, you do ask us to walk by faith and not by sight. You have called us to repent and to believe the good news. May that be the answer of every heart. May each heart here respond, repent, and therefore rejoice. We ask this in Jesus' name.